you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. I know, it's, it's an incredible story. I, I have all people know this. And you won't believe me, no, not at first. But I'm going to tell you the whole thing. Then you will believe, because you must. You must believe. The story that we're visiting tonight in the Twilight Zone was first published in a magazine called Rogue in November 1959 under the pen name C.B. Lovehill. It was then republished in Night Ride and Other Journeys in 1960 and is now in a book called The Howling Man published in 1992 which quite rightly has the true name of the author and that name is Charles Beaumont. Now this episode is a Twilight Zone that constantly appears on the best of the Twilight Zone lists, but does it really hold up? So there's a very jittery and urgent opening scene with our protagonist, David Ellington, where he uses the words, I know it's an incredible story, and so on. Now I must stress that in the reading of The Howling Man that I did, I used these opening words, but they are an invention of the television show. It's not actually in that original short story, but it's part of this kind of new framing device that we will talk about a bit more later on. And I will be making a lot of comparisons with the short story because, strangely considering it is considered such a classic, there's not that much in the way of trivia for The Howling Man. So our first kind of major difference is that we don't get any of David Ellington's backstory. In the short story, he knows where he is. He just gets sick. But in the Twilight Zone episode, they just say that he's lost in Europe and he comes across this monastery. So the whole setup is different. Ellington is sickening in the Twilight Zone version, but he isn't as sick as he is in the short story. Although whenever he is Douglas Hayes, the director, used camera tilt to illustrate it. And in the story, Father Jerome isn't encountered until the third act, really. He's there for the climax, but in this case, we get him right now. And he's still resolute in that Ellington must leave until he gets so sick that he passes out. So normally, on the Twilight Zone podcast, I would be probably past the opening narration by now but there's quite a lot put into that opening scene to kind of set the scene and that's when Rod Serling comes and does his thing the prostrate form of Mr. David Ellington scholar, seeker of truth and regrettably finder of truth a man who will shortly arise from his exhaustion to confront a problem that has tormented mankind since the beginning of time a man who knocked on a door seeking sanctuary and found instead the outer edges of the Twilight Zone. 
first broadcast on the 4th of November 1960, written by Charles Beaumont and directed by Douglas Hayes. Now it's not the most poetic or illuminating of Rod Serling's intros, but I'm okay with that. I think the story is the star here, and if there is a message there, it's not being delivered in a particularly Serling-esque way. So I think Rod Serling seems to be just doing his intro and getting out of the way, which sometimes is fair enough. And I've said in the past that I like it when Rod Serling is part of the scenery in the openings, but maybe it would have taken away from it this time, considering the time and the place, so I'll give it a pass. So when David Ellington awakes, he's on his feet, he's up and about, and there's no lion in bed listening to howls. There's little time for that. They have 20 or so minutes to tell a story, so they need to be a bit quicker getting to each point than they did in the short story. So it's a fair deviation and something had to go. And another deviation this time round is that we're only five minutes in and we meet the howling man. Help me. No, please. In the name of mercy, help me. You're not one of them. No. Uh, my name's Ellington. I'm an American. Shh. We have only moments. Come closer. Come. They're mad, Mr. Ellington. All of them raving mad. Listen. I was in the village in Swatov. I was walking in the street with my woman. We paused to rest by a tree. And we kissed. Is it wrong to kiss? Tell me. I don't think so. Of course you don't. You don't think so, and I don't think so. But Jerome, the lecherous old fool, we looked up, and I saw him standing close by. I tried to open my mouth to speak, but before I could utter a sound, he raised that heavy staff he carries. You've seen it? And he hit me again and again. Why? For revenge. Because she refused his advances, he took his fury out on me. So the episode is called The Howling Man. So there is obviously the howls that the Howling Man makes, and it's something that they needed to deal with as part of this production. Now, Mark Zickery in The Twilight Zone Companion documents the kind of struggles that they faced with this. The director, Douglas Hayes, said, The howling aspects of the show were hard to sell. Now, when you mention howling in a story, you hear this crazy howling off in the distance all the time. This man in the cell is howling. That's all right in the story. Very hard to translate to the screen. It's hard to believe that that man who is in that cell, would make those howling noises. I don't think we ever actually saw him howling, we only heard him, because to see him howling would have been very, very hard to buy. Now a friend of Charles Beaumont's, the writer William F. Nolan, was on the set and he said, I remember how concerned they were about the kind of cries and howlings, how demonic to make them, says Nolan. So they played endless tape recordings of howls to see which howl they liked best. And they'd all sit around and say, well, that howl is not satanic enough. And that howl is too high. It's almost like a woman. 
And maybe if we took that howl and this howl, we had a big howl session. So by this point, David Ellington has met the Howling Man. And we'll speak more about him later on. But for the moment, let's meet our David Ellington. He's played by an actor called H.M. Wynant, who was originally called Haim Wiener. His IMDb profile, written by his wife Paula Davis, tells the story of him arriving in New York as a young man with $125 in his pocket. And he got hired on the spot when he went to an open audition for a musical called High Button Shoes. And that was the start of his acting career. So he had a great grounding in the theatre at that time. And he did go on to be very prolific on television too. He was in a lot of the television shows at the time. But I never pass up an opportunity to link someone to Planet of the Apes. And in 1972, he appeared in Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. I'm going to revisit those films soon, so I will look out for him. Now, he only appeared in one Twilight Zone episode, but he did appear in a film called The Horror at 37,000 Feet. And the synopsis for that goes like this. An architect and his wife are flying from London to LA with an altar from an ancient abbey secured in the plane's cargo hold. Also aboard the flight are Buddy Ebsen as a pushy millionaire, William Shatner as a drunken cynical ex-priest, Tammy Grimes as a nutcase, and Chuck Connors as the lantern-jawed pilot. Crew and passengers come into jeopardy when an invisible demon escapes from the altar and threatens the plane in an effort to destroy the architect's wife. Now, the IMDb listing of the film doesn't credit Richard Matheson in it, but I think we can all see the similarities to another Twilight Zone episode there. I'll speak a little more about H.M. Wynant later on, but for now, let's go back to The Howling Man. So this Howling Man tells us the story of how he gets caught, and this time round, he actually makes the accusation that Father Jerome made advances on his woman, rather than imprisoning him for lying with his woman. Now the whole third act of the short story is this verbal exchange between Brother Jerome and Ellington, but it's sort of the middle section here this time round. It's very much our centrepiece, and it's this verbal exchange between Father Jerome and David Ellington. So just a couple of details, you'll notice that the monks all carry these staffs, Originally, Charles Beaumont wrote it that the monks would carry crosses, but Douglas Hayes thought, if we put that in, then it's going to be identifying them as a Christian sect, and some people might be offended by that. So he changed it, and apparently Charles Beaumont didn't really agree with that change. So there were a few things that Beaumont didn't like about this episode, and we'll come to another one later on. So there is this effort to try and make the monks not so overtly Christian. And Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic says that the August 4th, 1960 revision of the script featured a number of scene changes and production notes to explain the changes between the first and final draft. And one of those was the Abbey has been changed, for policy reasons, to the war-torn ruin of a once-great castle. Left little more than a shell by World War I explosives, ransacked, burned, it is a nightmare place, barely hinting of past grandeurs. 
The cells of the monks are therefore reconverted bedrooms, libraries, studies, etc. They can be as stark as in the original, but not quite so small perhaps. Brother Christopher's room was once the library of the Wolfram Castle, Jerome's the master bedroom. The prisoner occupies what was the pantry. Look, brother, I don't know much about this cult of yours, what's permitted, what isn't permitted, but I seriously doubt if you have the authority to imprison a man against his will. That is quite true. We have no such authority. Then why have you done it? No man has ever been imprisoned in the hermitage, Mr. Ellington. I was just talking with him. You talk to no man. So, like I said, we have this talk between Brother Jerome and David Ellington, and it survives the transition fairly well. There is obviously some cuts, some changes here and there. Brother Jerome is trying to explain himself and convince Ellington that uh, this man that he saw is the devil. I have heard it every hour of every day for five long years. Why did you lie? I didn't. When I told you that no man howled at the hermitage, I was being perfectly honest. What you saw is not a man. It is the devil himself. you saw in the cell is Satan, otherwise known as the Dark Angel, Ariman, Asmodeus, Belial, Diabolus, the devil. You asked for the truth, now you have it. It's a good scene, I don't think it quite zings along like some of Rod Sailing's verbal sparring matches between characters, but I guess it's not that kind of piece, it's very traditional in its approach and I've always thought of it like if Universal made a satanic movie while they were making their monster movies back in the 30s and 40s this is probably what it would end up like the gothic setting the thunder and lightning outside you know these broadly drawn characters and in that respect I think it works well but that Universal monsters connection isn't just in the look and the feel of the piece. Now I often say in the show that a certain actor is a hard-working actor of the time who jumped from show to show and maybe there's a notable credit here and there, it's just the way it was at the time. But every now and again you do get a bigger name showing up. You get a William Shatner or a Dennis Hopper. And this time round playing Brother Jerome we have John Carradine the Universal Monsters connection comes from the fact that back in the 1940s when Universal didn't bring Bela Lugosi back to play Count Dracula it was John Carradine who played him in House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula now he had very little screen time in House of Frankenstein a bit more in House of Dracula if memory serves but it's interesting the way he plays it in that Bela Lugosi's portrayal is so iconic to us now and 
Carradine was actually playing the same role in continuity with that character. But he goes his own way with it. He doesn't mimic Lugosi's accent or his look. He has a moustache and he has greying hair and is very well spoken with no trace of an accent. Maybe that is for the best going his own way with that character considering Lugosi was so iconic. Now John Carradine claimed to have appeared in over 300 films in his lifetime. I'm not sure if he's counting films or appearances in television shows as well because he was very prolific on television too. IMDB lists 346 actor credits for him so as hardworking actors go you probably can't get more hardworking than that. He does have two more Twilight Zone connections. He didn't do any more in the original series but he played Mr Hawkins in a segment of Night Gallery called Big Surprise and appeared in the 80s Twilight Zone revival playing Professor Alex Stottle in a segment called Still Life. So this is a man who carries a certain weight, who has a certain presence, and he is great casting for the part of Brother Jerome. I think he does walk a line between, at times, being very true and believable, and at other times you would just believe him to be mad. Like when he tells David Ellington how he keeps the devil trapped, and... This is what we need for that performance for now because it is pushing that ambiguity. The director Douglas Hayes says he was an inspiration and he said that was one case where John Carradine was able to do his stuff full out because it called for it. In this I said go because this guy is weird, wild. You see Mr Ellington, he made the same mistake that you have made. He underestimated me. He thought he would have no difficulty in tempting the old fool. But I had him in a cell before he knew what happened. But if he's the devil, how do you keep him locked up? With the staff for truth! The one barrier he cannot pass. It is enjoyable to sit and watch Carradine do that speech. He seems to know how to use the space he's given on screen, and he fills that space with his performance. So he mentions the staff of truth, and I think this is perhaps going to be an issue for some when they think of this episode, but again, I'll come back to that later on. After Ellington convinces Brother Jerome that he believes his story, even though he doesn't, he pays another visit to the cell of the Howling Man. And it's shortly after this that we get our first proper introduction to Brother Christophorus. He's very much sidelined in this version, which is understandable, you know, something had to go to keep the running time down. So Ellington takes a key from around Christopher's neck, and unlocks the door and goes back to the Howling Man. You've come. Good. What do you want me to do? Lift off the wooden bolt. Is this all that holds you in? Yes, lift it off. Well, why haven't you done it yourself? Please, there's no time for talk. Mr. Ellington, in the name of mercy, if you fail now, they'll kill both of us. Don't you understand that? Okay, so let's get the first potential criticism of the episode out of the way. The Staff of Truth is the only thing holding the Howling Man in the cell. And of all the criticism that I've read of this episode, this seems to be the major one. Why is this the only thing? Why not have a lock on it too? 
you know, is it a weakness to the story? A convenience in the story to make the escape easy? I've kind of got mixed feelings on it. Going back to the original story yet again. There is a line where Jerome says we chant his chains every day. And I like how that is written. In that world, it's the prayers and the chants of the monks that seem to depower the Howling Man so that he can be locked in a cell. It's never explicitly said, but from that line I get the idea that if they weren't there chanting those prayers, then the fact that the cell is locked wouldn't matter. The devil would have the power to bypass that lock somehow, but in his depowered state he can't, and he needs someone else to do it for him. So that's the short story, but in the episode there's no mention of chanting to keep him imprisoned, but there is the staff of truth, so that religious power that keeps him imprisoned is distilled into that, and it's that which secures the door. So the big question is, why didn't they just put a lock on it too? I suppose we do get the impression that there are no visitors to the Abbey, and with there being only monks there, they wouldn't remove it, so there's no issues. But it's still very careless. There's always the chance that someone would come in, and if you're imprisoning the devil, you better do all you can to keep them locked up. I think it is problematic, I'm not going to say there aren't issues around this particular area because there are. You know, half the time Ellington seems to be wandering around the Abbey on his own, whereas in the original story he had to be very sneaky to get to the Howling Man because he was always being watched. So it is problematic, but I always like to think that generally if a story is being told well, you can overlook things and you have to kind of make the decision that you're either going to go with it or you don't and for the sake of what's right about the episode I will go with it. So the devil is loosed from his cell and David Ellington very kindly gives him a suitably devilish cloak to wear and if there's one thing that's stuck in my head over the years it's what happens next when the howling man goes from man to devil in the space of 30 seconds. First off, the actor Robin Hughes begins the process with his performance. He's no longer the hunched over weary man. He stands tall, his facial expression changes, and you instantly know that he's different. I think it's very nicely done, and then the transformation begins, and we start with a change in his face. And because it's done with the same lighting technique that we saw with Long Live Walter Jameson, we can immediately see that this transformation is going beyond just the change in stature and then we have this scene where the devil walks along behind some pillars and with each pillar he transforms into a very traditional depiction of the devil so this is another thing that gets criticism there's no real subtlety in this depiction of the devil he is very obviously the devil and if you ask most people to draw the devil they probably draw something like this so I, I can understand that criticism but I think I accept it because like I said earlier I kind of see this as what if Universal did a satanic movie and this is what it would be like Universal movies were very broad in their depictions of the classic monsters very iconic so I go with it 
also I think the transformation is done really well and I enjoy that aspect of it too. So yeah, I'm giving another pass to a potential flaw in The Howling Man. The director Douglas Hayes said, in my literal kind of visual sense, I wanted to see him turn into the devil. I felt the audience would feel cheated unless they saw that, and Beaumont didn't want them to see it. He just wanted the expression on Wynant's face as he chased after him and reached up as the man went over the wall. All he wanted was to see the hand touching a cloven hoof just as it went over the wall. When I did the literal translation of showing him visually turned into the devil, Beaumont didn't like that. He liked it better the way he'd written it, and that was what he wanted to see. But I have a funny feeling as a director. I started as an artist and I like to see things. If I promise the audience something, if I say there are 3,000 Indians on the other side of that hill, I don't want to see one feather poke up behind a rock. I want to see 3,000 Indians. Now Douglas Hayes did say that he was influenced by a werewolf movie, a universal werewolf movie called Werewolf of London. And there is a transformation like that where the the man walks behind things and his transformation advances. So again, we're harkening back to the universal days with this one. So there's a very interesting choice of actor here for the part of the Howling Man. He's instantly very sympathetic. He's handsome, but almost feminine as well. He reminds me of Peter O'Toole with his eyes. Very expressive, and they do stand out a lot. In the short story, Beaumont describes him as hissing when he talks. But there's none of that here. But I think it's a good way to try and wrong foot an audience who might not know the story. The actor's name is Robin Hughes and he was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And again, he's one of our hard-working actors of the time. His notable films are Hitchcock's Dial in for Murder and the 1950 version of Serrano de Bergerac. His only Twilight Zone appearance, but there is one further Twilight Zone connection in that he was in one of the episodes of Rod Serling's next series after the Twilight Zone, which is the Western TV show, The Loner. He's only in the one episode of The Loner, but it's a series I would like to check out someday. It's the story of a cowboy played by Lloyd Bridges, who was a soldier in the Civil War and has now returned and travels from town to town. And there are people who seem to regard it quite highly. I'm sorry for you, my son. All your life you will remember this night. And you'll know, Mr. Ellington, whom you have turned loose upon the world. I, I didn't believe you. I, I saw him and didn't recognize him. That is man's weakness and Satan's strength. So the devil is out of his cage, and we have met the devil in the Twilight Zone before, and we'll probably meet him again. I like this version. He is depicted as humankind's struggle and failings. It's a bit of a carryover from the short story, but this devil seems to walk among us, and his presence, wherever he is, makes the people around him do bad things. And if he's there long enough, that influence deepens and things get progressively worse and wars start. 
I think that some people struggle with that part of it too, that people are supposed to endure only a certain level of evil, and that anything above and beyond that is the work of the devil. I mean, that's a discussion in itself, but this is a work of fiction, and this is what Charles Beaumont has chosen, so I'll take it. I think if I have a problem with the episode now, it's that I am so intimately acquainted with the short story that I do get a bit of that feeling you get when you watch a film of a book that you love. And even if it is a good film, it's not quite the same because it does have to be trimmed down and switched around for the screen. Now Mark Zickery thinks it's an improvement over the short story, but for me I actually prefer the short story, the way it's paced and structured, apart from maybe one thing and that's the ending. Now in the short story, Ellington returns to his privileged life and gets a postcard to say that the monks have the Howling Man back again. But in the episode, Ellington becomes obsessed with writing the wrong that he's done and goes after the Howling Man and this has probably been going on for years because he is visibly older. So this is what I actually prefer, that the battle with the devil is ongoing. It's a constant struggle the same way we struggle, or struggle to do the right thing. Sometimes we catch the devil and we keep him under lock and key, but other times we don't. But although I prefer this ending in principle, probably the biggest hurdle for me is that Ellington closes out the episode so carelessly. He, of all people, should know the dangers of leaving someone there like that, with only his handy portable staff of truth there to secure the Howling Man. And then to leave the maid alone in there like that, in the apartment, it's a lot to accept. I like that the episode wanted to end on a note where we see that the devil is still out there. But not that it was done in such a careless fashion. You know, does it kill the episode for me? It, it doesn't, I still like it, but it is a shame. I think of all the potential flaws that I've spoke about, this one is the one that that hits home hardest for me. So before I go, I will talk about our leading man, H.M. Winant, again, because I like his performance he gives. It's quite unique, and especially at the end, he seems to have been driven almost mad by his quest. He has this kind of jittery quality to him throughout, but when he's caught the devil at the end, it comes out even more. He has became almost as mad as Brother Jerome. Or maybe not completely mad, but he's certainly walking that line. So it is a thumbs up from me for the Howling Man, with maybe a couple of grievances along the way. But does it deserve its classic status? I think so. It's quite unique amongst Twilight Zones. It has its own feel, its own distinct flavour. And I do recall my first watching of it and how impressed I was by it. Perhaps familiarity has dulled some of those edges over time. But I still think it's a very good episode that maybe falls just shy of true greatness, but only just. Ancient folks saying, you can catch the devil, but you can't hold him long. Ask Brother Jerome. Ask David Ellington. They know, and they'll go on knowing to the end of their days and beyond in the twilight zone. Now let's listen to some feedback from listeners to the Twilight Zone podcast in submitted 
for your approval. out some emails that I've received. Now, I receive a lot of emails from people, but a lot of them are, Tom, you know, great job with the show, enjoy the show, etc., which I do love, and I, I like to have conversations with people, which is great. Um, but the ones I tend to read out are the ones where people have something to say about the episode, and there's been a few of those, which is good. Now, I received some emails from a gentleman called Peter. There's quite a few of them. I'm going to read out the first one, because he talks about the episode from season one, the 16mm Shrine. He says, Dear Mr. Elliot, thanks for all your great Twilight Zone podcasts. I've enjoyed them very much. I understand your criticisms of the 16mm Shrine. However, I would like to point out how prescient and self-referential the episode potentially is to Twilight Zone fans. Barbara Jean Trenton could be us, sitting in a dark room, watching and re-watching episodes of the Twilight Zone as an escape from and or substitute for the real-time business of our personal lives. There's a similar scene in Rod Serling's second Emmy-winning live TV drama, Requiem for a Heavyweight, in which we repeatedly see a bar that the manager refers to as the graveyard, a dying room in which punchy ex-boxers spend all their time drinking and talking about past fights fighting their lives away inside their heads. Early in the play, Mountain, the boxer who has just left the ring for good, observes the graveyard and says out loud, That's no way. That's no way at all. Indeed it's not. Thanks for your attention, Peter. No, thank you, Peter. Thank you very much for your contact. I appreciate it. And Requiem for a Heavyweight is something that I haven't seen. I understand it, it exists in various forms and... Uh, Maybe someday I'll get round to that one. A lady called Grace emails me occasionally, and uh, she sent me this one. An exceptional reading of a fine story and a wonderful holiday surprise, talking about my reading of The Howling Man. And she says, When I was little, I used to listen to records on my parents' Magnavox record player. Some albums being just ghost stories and stormy night tales. Your reading brought back that piece of personal nostalgia for me. Would love to hear more readings sometime in the future. Grace. Thank you, Grace. That's a lovely message, Anna. I'm glad that I uh, brought back those memories for you. There will definitely be more short stories in the future. I would uh, like to do some myself. We've kind of got to see what we're given. I'd like to do some myself, but I'm really keen to get my friend Brandy on again to uh, do another short story so we will see what that might be but she has a beautiful voice that I I love to hear do this kind of thing so I think she'll be next up once we find something suitable but thank you again Grace a gentleman called Enrique emailed me he said greetings from Austin Texas I used to live in Texas I used to live in Texas I, uh, I miss it good job and welcome back to the podcast your reading of the howling man was superb and haunting with the sound effects you incorporated into the reading. The Howling Man is by far my favourite Twilight Zone episode. Although I remember watching the Twilight Zone and Twilight Zone movie as a child and both scaring me to no end, 
It wasn't until I was 19 and attending university that I got back into the Twilight Zone through the New Year's Marathon on the Sci-Fi Channel. The first episode I remember watching was The Howling Man. As you know, the character of the devil appears many times in the series, but this was my favourite representation of the character. He is represented as benign, charismatic, almost misunderstood, all the while manipulating humans to do his will. The image of him walking around the small, debaucherous German town is a stark, indelible scene that for me made me imagine that he continues this to present day. An all-round great story, and what made me a Twilight Zone fan for life. Thank you again for the podcast, and please thank Luke for carrying the torch while you disappear briefly into the fifth dimension. Regards, Enrique. Some great commentary there on the Howling Man, and I I think I agree, that's what I like about it too, that it kind of leaves us with this impression that he's still out there, and he still can exert that power and influence if we let him. And yeah, thanks to Luke, I I think you can consider your thanks passed on, and um, I'm sure he appreciates that. One last one from our friend Grace again, and she said, Sad news, Rod Taylor, who starred in the feature film The Time Machine and The Twilight Zone episode, and When the Sky Was Opened, sadly passed away January 7th, 2015. He was 84, just four days shy of his 85th birthday. And When the Sky Was Opened is one of my favourite episodes, and I love his performance in it. He does a fantastic job portraying a man who is trying to grapple with the fact that him and his crew are disappearing, being erased one by one, by an unknown entity or force, and there's nothing that they can do to stop it. That's a frightening concept. When I saw this I thought, what would happen if I ran into my parents or friends and none of them knew who I was? I think it would strike me to my core and make question everything. The unknown working on you is a prominent theme throughout the series, but this episode for me is the most striking example. Equally, Forbes could just be a man who's gone insane and none of this is happening at all. This is where Mr. Taylor shines, he does a great job with this character and shows a man in a blur of chaos trying to find something solid anything solid to hold on to. Rest in peace, Mr. Taylor. You will be missed. Well, I can't really say better than that. Thank you, Grace, for um, some lovely words about Rod Taylor there. I rarely speak about the people who pass from the Twilight Zone. You know, I think there's no real reason for that. I guess I'm sort of celebrating each episode, and I don't know, you know, some people only just discover the podcast months or years after an episode has been put out, so it's it's not quite timely in that respect. But, um, you know, it's nice to uh, pay tribute to those, those people who sadly there are fewer and fewer of now because it is a show over 50 years old. But, um, but yeah, rest in peace, Rod Taylor, and we all thank you for your contribution to film and The Twilight Zone. So that's all for this episode. Next time we're a little spoiled, we've got another one that is considered to be a classic, so it's going to be good to see if that one holds up too. It is Eye of the Beholder, and if you want to put in your opinions to the podcast about Eye of the Beholder, then as always, email me at tom at com, and it'd be good to hear from you. So until then, 
I will speak to you soon. Bye-bye.